verses 1 and 2 this week. We started with verse 1 last week. We're going to step into verse 2 this week. But in reminding you of what we're uh, talking about, I was wondering why you were all fuzzy. Um, in reminding you about what we're, what we're talking about, I just want to read for you just uh, those couple of verses. New King James Version says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. If you have your Bible, if you have your uh, device open, I would, ju- I would invite you to go ahead and just hold that verse open. Just kind of look at it and think about it as we are walking through it a little bit today. Um, I just want, to, I want you to, to, to kind of take it in because we started last week. We spent quite a bit of time talking about the mercies of God. We talked about the, the significance of that word because this whole, this whole section, in fact, this whole chapter is an if-then response. Now that you have seen all of these mercies, now that all these things have been laid out before you in the, in the first 11 chapters of the book, he's, he's in the last three chapters, 8, 9, or, um, 9, 10, and 11, been talking specifically about the Jewish people and what's going on with their redemption and how that might happen. And as he's working through Deuteronomy and he's working through Exodus and he's talking about the things that God has promised for the people of Israel... And that the people who are Christians should not kick them to the curb, assume that they're not saved, that, they are, they're, that they're not re- their, their blessings are not revoked by God. But one of the great, amazing things that is stated in Deuteronomy, that one of the things he's leaning on in this passage is that God would provoke them by bringing a people who are not a people into himself, unto himself. And that he would provoke them to jealousy. And Paul is leaning hard on that idea that there would be a jealous desire within the people of Israel to come to know God in the way that the Christians had come to know God. And that the very testimony of Christianity going forward to the world would challenge Israel and would call the people of Israel to God. And there is that is, is there in front of us in Romans. And it is something that should continue on in our understanding that God has not revoked his call on the people of Israel. He is still calling them because they are Israelites does not disqualify them from falling under the grace of God. And that if they or any would turn to God and recover his mercies through faith, then in fact they are entered into that relationship. And that you and I are grafted into that root as we come to know Christ. By faith, Abraham, our father and theirs, trusted God, believed God, had faith in God for his promise, and it was accounted to him as righteousness, as it is to you and as it is to me. Can we pray one more minute? Lord, we lay all of this in front of you today. We pray that as we embark into your word that you would walk with us, that you would actually lead us. And that the preacher would disappear and your voice would be heard. And that your spirit would speak to each of us. That we would hear in bold 
prominent voice, the things that each of us needs to take home today. In Jesus' name, amen. The uh, easy reading version, ERV, says, So I beg you, brothers. I like that translation. Because you don't use the word beseech. I don't think you've beseeched anybody in years. But you've probably begged some people. You've probably pled with some people. I beg you. So I beg you, brothers and sisters, because of the great mercy God has shown us, offer your lives as a living sacrifice to Him. We're talking for the second time about flyers and catchers. Flyers and catchers. I, I started last time talking to you a little bit about Henry Nowen and his, his, uh, his picture uh, we, we didn't get into much background. Henry Nouwen um, is a Catholic theologian who had been in an Ivy League school, left that and went to work among peoples who were truly in need as, a, as he felt the desire to actually be physically involved in presenting to people a, 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 an answer from God to the needs that they felt practically. And so that was how he spent the last portion of his life. Uh, after rising to great prominence as a theologian, he spent the last portion of his life in what he considered to be a, a more excellent purpose and a more excellent duty. He still wrote, he still talked, he still preached and did things of that nature, but his primary function from day to day was to meet the very, very specific and tactile needs of individuals who were in desperate need of grace and in desperate need of help. And that's, that's uh, probably the, the time of his life he is most famous for. In part of that, he found himself during a small period, <clears throat> traveling with a troop <clears throat> of high wire acts. It was a family that had, over their family history, become a high wire act. And as he talked about it, he sat down with the flyer and he began to talk. The flyer's the star, right? The flyer's the person who's letting go of the trapeze on one side, flying through the air, performing acrobatic stunts, and then throwing up their hands at the last minute to be caught by the catcher. And he said, so tell me about this whole experience. He said, well, there are just flyers and catchers. He said, everybody thinks the flyer is the star of the show. But Joe, that's the, that was the name of his catcher. Joe is the real star. Because Joe is the one who everyone claps for. Think about it. Just think about it yourself. If the flyer goes through the air, performing great stunts of acrobatics, misses the catcher and falls to the, to the net, instead of applause, there's a gasp, right? Because instead of this being a successful, amazing stunt pulled off by this guy who looks like me, but is doing things I can't imagine doing, if all of that stunt work works perfectly and he fails to get his hands up to be caught, he's no longer a flyer, he's a follower, right? Remember? It doesn't really matter. You don't get style points for falling. If you fall off a building of great height, no, no matter how many acrobatic things you do on the way down, that landing's going to probably be terminal. But the catcher doesn't do the catching. The flyer's work is useless. And so he said, Joe is the real 
star of the show. Because he has to time his moves with my moves to be exactly where I need him to be to catch me. That one idea stuck with Nellen for the rest of his life. And he talked about it and he talked about it and he wore it out. Because it's so accurate to what the life of faith is like. The life of faith is letting go of the trapeze. And flying through the air, which is just controlled falling. And then at the end, having your hands up so that you might be caught. It is, uh, it is the statement in Psalm 46. The last thing you need to do to be caught is to be still. Hold still so I can catch you. Some of you have caught your children who jumped at you, right? Or maybe you've caught someone else's children who jumped at you. I don't know. But have you ever caught the kid who's getting real excited about the jump? And they climb up on whatever they're climbing up on, you know, the back of the couch or whatever, and they jump. Catch me, Daddy! And you catch them. And they climb up again, and they jump, and you catch them. I had three and then five kids. You have to be really careful about other people getting excited about getting involved in the game because pretty quick they can jump faster than you can catch. Or they start getting excited and jumping from different places or jumping in different directions. And man, you're like, whoa, whoa, hey, somebody's going to get hurt or jump at daddy, not past daddy. When you catch that one over by the arm, suddenly the game becomes scary for daddy. They're all good. Because they're sure daddy's going to catch them no matter where they jump. See, that's the picture. To be so sure that our father will catch us. That we will leap in faith from any height he asks us to jump from. Into any disadvantage that we perceive in doing so. Because we just know he will catch us. And we're, we're not without witnesses of this working. The Bible's replete with stories of this one thing. People who jump. We get to hear some of the angst sometimes. I don't know if I should jump. I'm worried about jumping. And we hear about people who just seem to do it. How did Daniel end up in the lion's den? Jumped. How did his buddies end up in a fiery furnace? Jumped. How did David slay Goliath? Jumped. How did you become a follower of Jesus? Jumped. There's no one who grasps onto the mercies of God by faith who hasn't jumped. It's a mental thing. To let go of the trapeze, right? Because we know that down is the way gravity works. We're aware that if we let go of this thing, we're in trouble. It's a mental thing for the person who's doing it. It's a mental thing for the person who's doing it for the 500th time. Because you have to convince yourself in your head, amidst all of the data that says something else, 
that when you let go, Joe's going to be there at the other end. And this day, like every other day, he will get the timing just right. And if you, once you have done your somersaults and you're flying, will just stick up your hands, he'll catch you. Every time a person has to let go of the trapeze, no matter what that trapeze is for our lives, every time we do it, it's a mental trick. We have to overcome the data. That's what Paul is saying in the rest of this text. Do not be conformed to the world's data. Do not be conformed to the world's opinion of how this thing works. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be transformed by a change in the way you think. Because when you allow your mind to work through the faith, when you allow your mind to change and you stop being your own leader and you become a follower of Jesus, everything changes. But that requires a jump. So today I want to just talk about, talk about this being transformed by the renewing of your mind. Second verse, being transformed by the renewing of your mind. Those of you who have stepped into the abyss because God called you there, know how this works. I will tell you, pastors fight this all the time. I don't know any pastors who have gone into ministry who have either, not at the beginning or at some point in their lives, come to the point where they're saying, God, is this really what you want me to do? That's a pretty scary thing you're asking me to do. And we all go to God in those moments saying, God, it doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense. Me? Are you kidding me? I know who I am. You know who I am. They don't, nobody wants to see me stand up in a pulpit every week and talk to them. No one who... <laughs> maybe I should say this. No one who feels adequate to do this job should be doing this job. And no one I know who does this job feels adequate to do this job. But I don't think we're alone. I think we're just a weird breed of this. I think every follower of Jesus has faced this at some point or another. Where you have had to, had to look at those around you, look at your own understandings, deal with the, the cognitive dissonance of being a follower of God. Because it creates just such a thing. The whole world is shouting at you a different story. And God says, ignore them. You can trust me. But it's a mental thing first. It's a decision. Decisions are made in here. It's a decision to make that happen. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You can see the game. Do you get the game? The game is on one side being conformed to the way the world wants you to function. On the other side, being transformed by the change of mind. Okay, so if we set the table on the game. Would, if, if, that's, if that's good, I just want to give you some pictures. I just want to walk through some of the evidence of people who have done it. Mark chapter 5. Oh, hit it twice. The transformation of a mind. 
the transformation of a mind. Mark chapter 5, example number 1. Jesus was preparing to leave for the boat. Do you know the back, you know background of this story? Anybody got it? Can you name this, this story in three verses? The story is Jesus and the disciples have crossed the Sea of Galilee to the area on the other side, on the east side, the area called the Gadarenes. We actually think we know the right place. Because it says in this story that they ran the, the pigs off a cliff. There's only one cliff on that side of the, of the lake. I think I've told you this before. So if they take you over there, they say this is the place where this happened. Look around for the cliff. If there's no cliff, you're not in the right place. If you get to the right place, there's actually a little chapel. It's, it, well, there's the remains of a little chapel there. And you can look to the, to the south from there and you can see the cliff. You can be pretty sure that pigs went off there and this is where this happened. Somewhere along the coast right here. Jesus arrives in that coast. He's confronted with a man, maybe two. The, the Gospels aren't sure. I think the disciples are so freaked out, maybe they were seeing double. The guy is so intimidating. He has he is torn chains. He has cut himself. He's naked and he's living among the tombs. And he rushes screaming at them when they land on the other shore. What would you have done at that moment? What do all the data points that you are collecting when that happens... Safe for you to do. Get your behind back in the boat. Right? Launch the boat. Get out so deep enough he can't follow. There's a crazy person here. Jesus doesn't. Jesus steps into the confrontation between good and evil. He looks the man in the eye. They, their faces one to one. Eyes meet. Jesus confronts the evil that's in the man that's been causing all of this craziness in his life. And he casts out the demon. And the man settles down. I love one of the images of this that I saw. One of the images was uh, of, of the disciples in the midst of all of this. And they're all kind of worried. Now, this wild man still bleeding and standing there in front of them. They don't show his entire body. Jesus turns to one of the disciples and he says, anybody got an extra tunic? Right? Wouldn't that be your first order of business? Let's get him covered up. And the townspeople come out after the pigs have run off the hill. And they see this man sitting there. And the Bible says, in his right, what? Mind. You see, it's a mind game. It's a mental game. He's had a change of his mind. And now in his right mind, in this conversation with Jesus, we get to the end of the story, and we've had the the confrontation with evil. We've had the pigs run off the cliff. We have the whole town come come out and tell Jesus, would you please just get back in the boat and go away? And the man says, can I come? The way Mark puts it was... uh, Jesus was preparing to leave in the boat, and the man who was now free from the demons begged to go with him. Do you know what Jesus' answer is? Continues, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you, and how he has had compassion. Some translators say, mercy. Go back to your friends and tell them 
what just happened to him. He goes from being the terror of his community to being the evangelist of his community. You know where he wants to go? With Jesus. And Jesus says, nope, I need you to tell the story of our encounter for the people to live in this community. Wasn't in his right mind. Now, here he is with one story. He doesn't have a Jewish background. He doesn't have a bunch of biblical understanding. He has no theological training, but he has one story. Could you tell one story? The one you know best? Your story? How did you go from being crazy to following God? How did you become a follower of Jesus against all the odds, against all the crazy and wild things that are in our world? How did you decide to do this? It's a great story. It doesn't need any embellishment. And you don't have to have been naked in the tombs to start the story. You know, for me, I met a girl. I went back to church because of the girl. And Jesus started to get hold of my heart for the words I was giving, for what I read in the text. That's my story. A slow change of mind. What was I focused on? The girl. Who did I learn to love? Jesus. By the way, I got the girl. Bonus material. Your story. That's all he had. Go tell him. You know what happens if you're a familiar Bible student. When Jesus comes back the next time, they're all waiting to talk to him. Because this guy's story. Mark chapter 10. See if you can name this story. Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you whole. And immediately he received his sight. And followed Jesus down the road. Remember this story? It's from Jericho. Jesus is walking out of the city of Jericho. And there's a man there. Maybe two. And they're calling out to Jesus. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And the gathered crowd, the people who are hanging with Jesus, they say, shh, the master's trying to talk. Shut up, man. Hey! He just gets louder. Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus does the unthinkable. He stops church. He turns to the man and he says, Somebody go get him. And the people in the crowd say, but Lord, he's noisy and he's loud and you know, he's blind too. But you're, bring him over here. He shows up next to Jesus. Jesus asks him that question. What would you like to have happen to you? What do you want from me? What does that force you to do? It forces you to go into your head and ask yourself, what is it that I really want? For him it was obvious. I'd like my sight back. Duh. Jesus said, okay. Your faith in me makes it possible. You're good. 
And immediately he receives his sight. What does he do next? Follows Jesus down the road. He goes from being a guy who's begging on the side of the road. and His whole identity is about his blindness. His income is created by his blindness. Everything he knows about life is in the dark. To a guy who can see in the moment. But you know what changes? He's been longing for his sight for all of this time. He has now, by believing in Jesus, actually attained it. And here's his story. He had to get up and face the crowd. He had to get up against everybody who was saying, shut up. And insist on getting to Jesus. And when he got there, Jesus said, are you sure of what you want? He said, oh yeah, I'm sure. It's all I've wanted for the last who knows how long. He said, all right, because you believe that I can heal you, here's your sight. The creator God, with a spoken word, restores the sight of his creation. And the man goes, I'm following him. He doesn't know who this guy is. He's heard this much from Jesus. But the impact of this much has transformed so much that he's willing to follow and find out what else there is to learn. Nobody joins themselves to Christ with a full retinue of information. We're all going at this with minimum context. Enough to put faith in A decision that feels risky. Let go of what we've been holding on to. Whatever we identify ourselves as in this moment. To let go. And be sure that he'll catch. You see, it's been the story all along. It's still the story. It was the story in Mark. It's still the story as we move on. Sometimes you have to hold that in a special way. Those who see, follow. I beg you, in view of God's mercy, now that you have seen God's mercy, you have been told the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. In Jesus Christ our Lord, you have been told that God is for us. And if God is for us, who could be against us? You have been told that the mercy of God is yours for the asking. By just trusting Him, by just accepting it, you would be covered by His grace, sins removed, your name written in the Lamb's book of life, and all you have to do is say, I'd like that. And step into that. And let him take the lead. Those who see his mercy follow. In view of God's mercy. What would you like? Well, I'd like to see, obviously. Okay. Because you trust me. Romans chapter 12 again. 
Do not be conformed to the world. The world says, stop talking. The world tells him, you're disrupting church. The world says, Jesus has things that are more important to say than you. And the guy says, I don't care, I'm going to talk. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Be quiet. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Be quiet. The Bible says it's a crowd around Jesus. Are you willing to face the crowd? To get closer to Jesus? It's a risk. Man, you might get canceled. They might kick you off of Facebook. That'd be horrible. I've been trying to figure out how to turn that thing off. They don't give you that information too easily. If somebody knows, would you send it to me? Pastorgroff at gmail.com would be the easiest way to get to remember. Seriously, if you don't know how to get off there, just please send me that information. I digress. That's his comment. This guy was not willing to be conformed to what the world said for him to do. He was not willing to be conformed to what those who were shouting from the crowd were asking him to do. Because he desired something from Jesus and he believed Jesus could do it. And in not being conformed, he began to prove what is, what was, the good and perfect will of God. What was the will of God for blind Bartimaeus? That he see. Well, it's obvious in the text. He began by trusting in God to understand the will of God. Forgive me if you've heard me say this 14 times. Check your box, number 15. Obedience that willingness to step out into that place when God calls you is the only means for faith to grow. Obedience, when God challenges you with something you don't want to do, because when God challenges us with something we want to do, we don't call that obedience. It is obedience, but we don't call it obedience. Because we're like, yeah, sure, I want to do that for God. I'm good with that. God says, hey, I'd like to make you a millionaire. I'm on. I'm in. Go. Call me. Hey, I'd like, you, I'd like you to deal with poverty your whole life because your spiritual life in this area is so weak that if you had a dollar, you'd go off in the wrong direction so that you might be saved. Trust me in poverty. It's like, um, can I get the millionaire guy's answer? We call that obedience because it's not something we want to do. They're both obedience. One's just harder. The person who takes the millions that they wanted, their faith grows. You know how it grows? Because there's a lot of challenges with having that much money. And to stay in a walk with God amidst that kind of an income takes faith. 
the person who's broke and they're constantly struggling to get another dollar to pay for the bills. And they're on their knees daily and they're on their knees asking for God's help because they're always right at the knife's edge. Their faith grows. And the millionaire is on his knees saying, God, please don't let this money ruin me. And the impoverished guy is saying, Lord, please send me a buck. And when God calls us to do something, and we hear and we follow, our faith grows. The guy in the Gadarenes has a lot of faith in Jesus after what happened to him. Blind Bartimaeus has a lot of faith in Jesus after what happened to him. Here's, here's how he describes it to the Thessalonians. This is the will of God. Drum roll, Daryl, Sometimes I used to have Daryl stay there so he could play drum rolls at appropriate moments. Your sanctification. This is the will of God. He'd like your life to be more like Jesus' life. Is, is that a revelation? I think it's all over the Bible. Now, I want you to get the picture here. In view of God's mercy, in the covering of His grace, in the assurance of your salvation, God still wants your life to be better. He still wants you to have a better life. He still wants you to experience the alignment with Him that will produce a better life, that will produce abundance in your experience. Blind Bartimaeus had a choice. He could have said, the crowd is too loud, I have to be quiet. When Jesus said, what do you want? He said, well, I'm in kind of financial tight spot. I mean, I don't have a job, I can't get a job. All right, you want money? He said, I desperately would like to see. Short man climbs up a tree so that he can see Jesus pass by. It's just a parade. He's, all he's gotten in for, the ticket he bought was to see the parade. That's all. He was not planning for anything else that day. He bought the ticket to get a seat to see the parade, climbed up the tree, sat in the tree and watched as Jesus came by. And lo and behold, Jesus stops in front of the tree. It's like Elvis pulling his his hanky off and handed it to the person in the front row, right? If you're too young for that, go look at it on the internet. Hawaii, 1970, what, four, five, nine? Man, that was older than I thought. He got, the, he got the prize. Jesus stopped under his tree, looked up and said, Hey, you, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm having lunch at your house today. transformed by the altercation with Jesus. His whole life changes. That's the call. That's what Paul is saying. In view of God's mercy, jump into this relationship. Accept it. It'll be awesome. You'll love it once you do it. And follow him home. Follow him home. The last person. Paul's a Pharisee. This is another Pharisee. 
I, I kind of wish we had a Bible quiz and we could have you just like punching numbers and to see who all knows all those things as we do it. But this one's pretty obvious. It's John chapter 3. This is the guy who gets the greatest phrase in all the Bible. John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I mean, this is such a significant statement, such a, a cool chunk of theological information that they hold it up at football games in the end zone. Awesome. He sneaks in at night, a Pharisee of Pharisees, a leader of the people, a teacher in Israel. And Jesus gives him this amazing theology course. It's just a, a, a power-packed few minutes of conversation. And he goes away. But it doesn't die as it goes away. Jesus planted a seed the size of an acorn in there. And it became an oak tree. You see it sprout in chapter 7. Chapter 7. It's, it's a little obscure, obscure statement. The Sanhedrin is gathered together. The people have gathered together. They have actually sent people to find something to convict Jesus of. They come back and they say, well, what did you find out? Well, this guy talks like nobody else. I, you know. And they start to jump on them and they want to convict Jesus. And, and, and you hear Nicodemus' voice. Fellas? Um, does our law judge a person without cause? Turn their vitriol on him. You know the scriptures. Has any prophet ever come out of Galilee? Does the Bible ever predict that a prophet will come out of Galilee? What's wrong with you? I get the, the picture. I don't know. But he kind of slinks back. And then we get to the end of the book. John, the only disciple who was an eyewitness to the event, says at the end of the event, at the end of the day, when Jesus has said, it's finished. And the, sword has been, or the, the spear has been shoved into his side so that they could test the reality of his death. He says two characters show up. Two guys show up. Joseph of Arimathea, in whose, in whose grave he will be buried. And Nicodemus. It took 16 chapters for him to get there. But he shows up. At the risk of his career. At the risk of his life. At the risk of his reputation. He jumped. That's a bigger leap than most of us are asked to make the first time. It was a big leap, but it had, been, it, had been, it had been the seed that germinated from John 3 that we're seeing in John 19. It was the seed of the words of Jesus when, when he repeats the words in his head, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And when he, when he hears Jesus say that I must be lifted up like the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, and then... Remember, the Pharisees are the people who have come to that, that bit of road right outside of Jerusalem where crucifixions happen. And they're the ones taunting the men who is now hanging on a, pit, on a, on a stake like the, the serpent had. And Nicodemus sees prophecy. 
deep fulfillment. Here's the word ringing. He gave his only begotten son. And he comes out to that place, that public place where Jesus was crucified. He joins Joseph in carefully taking the body of Jesus down, physically handling the body of this dead Messiah covered in blood, caked on it, caked all over it, in the back, in the front. He's just been destroyed, mutilated, laying him gently down on a white cloth, laying spices in layers and covering, and laying spices in layers and covering, and a hundred pounds of spices get placed on the body of this broken man, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, maybe John, some of the women, carry him then, place him in Joseph's tomb, and watch the stone get rolled to close it and the stamp of Rome placed on it. And before the resurrection of Jesus, Joseph recognizes the sacrifice of Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And Nicodemus jumps. There's a long line of jumpers in front of us. God's never missed one. 